And for the rest of you, uh, would you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, James chapter 1. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, so last week we had an opportunity to begin this series uh, dealing with relationships, titled the series uh, Developing Vital Relationships. And last week we had an opportunity to look at that faith is tested. We had talked about the fact that relationships, in relationships, trouble is inevitable. It will come. And that great growth is possible in relationships. If you remember last week, I told you that the greatest joys and the deepest sorrows have probably come from relationships that you've been in. And then James talked about this counsel. Um, he gave us counsel of how we can deal with relationships and the trials in our lives. He said that we're all going to deal with trials, every single one of us, believer or non-believer, young or old. We're all going to deal with trials in our lives. But James, if you remember, gave us some counsel, and he said, first, there needs to be a fundamental approach as you come to the trials in your life. And he had said that you come with an aspect of joy. Now, that sounds ridiculous to us. But remember, he said that you need to consider it joy. It all comes down to what you think and believe. It's your perspective in life. So as you're going through these relational trials, you need to see this as a possibility for joy. And we had asked, we had told you that we should see this trial as not to be unexpected and not to be a surprise, as Peter said, but this joy is a deliberate choice that you are going to make to choose joy in the midst of the trial. But then we said it wasn't just a fundamental approach. We said, second, there was a foundational assurance. You remember? The foundational assurance is to know that God is in control. God is the one that is sovereignly ordaining everything that has happened in your life. Even the relational difficulties that you deal with, God is sovereignly in control of it. You remember Job that in Job's life, the struggles that he had gone through, God sovereignly was the one ordaining it. Or do you remember Joseph from the Old Testament? He had to deal with his brothers. And you remember in Genesis chapter 50, 20, it says what? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for what? For good, because God is sovereignly at work. So that's a foundational assurance that I should have, that God is in control. He's sovereign over this trial. He can help us work through. And you remember we talked about one of the key elements of this trial is endurance. Endurance is not just simply a direction of our lives, but it's a determination of our lives. A direction going in God's way, but a determination to do it in such a way that is going to honor God through the relational trials that you have. Then we not only talked about that, but we talked about this filtering process. It's a purifying process. God is not just putting us on a path of direction through these relational trials. He is looking to grow you through these relational trials. He's looking to rip off sin out of your life. He's looking to grow you so that you look more and more like him, that you're maturing in him. And then we talked about the fact that as you go through these trials, oftentimes you doubt. We all do. And what God says is that's okay to doubt I understand, but you come to me so that I can give you wisdom. When you come to me for wisdom in your doubts, come to me without doubting. That trust that I am the all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God who is here with you, and I can get you through this trial. Remember, we talked about the big windshield in the front and the small rearview mirror. 
that the things that are in front of you is where we need to be looking. And the things that are behind you, don't get caught up on those because you've already passed those. They're gone. We need to ask in faith without doubting. And we talked about the materialism. And most people from a human perspective would look at a poor person and say that they are not being blessed. And they would look at a rich person and look at, at them and say that they are blessed. And what James was arguing is that rich or poor, we all have the final analysis that we will stand before God. And you will stand before God and receive a crown which is life or you will receive condemnation. And then James ended that section by talking about this. He said that every trial that comes into your life is either a trial to grow your faith in God or a temptation to rob it, to hinder it. You know who chooses? You do. You choose. So that problem with your wife or your husband, that problem with your parent or uh, your sibling, that relational difficulty that comes into your life is either a trial where I turn to God and say, I can't do this, I don't understand, Lord help me, and I turn to him, and he changes me, and he grows me through this to help me to love this person and love God through this, or it becomes a temptation where I trust in myself, I'm fueled by my own desires, and I do sin. And then James ended that section by talking about every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. And so now if I can see that, that the gift of this marriage, the gift of this child, the gift of even the breath that I have is given to me by God. So if I can look at my life through that lens, that I have so many wonderful things that I don't deserve. So even if I go through this trial and God's going to use this trial to grow me, then I can praise him. So now we come to a faith that loves. In James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, know this. Now, this is a question. Is he talking about knowing the prior thing about trials, or is he talking about knowing what is going to come afterwards? I think it's both. Let's try to figure this out. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, every person, male, female, young or old, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What does he mean by that? You ever hear that verse pulled out of context, right? You know, I mean, we just stamp that on somebody who struggles with anger, and you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Pull it completely out of context. But look at it in the light of the context here. In the trials that you're going through, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then right afterwards, what does it say? For the anger of a man, verse 20, does not produce the righteousness of God, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive what? With meekness, the implanted word, word of God. That when James is talking about this section, what he is doing is this. He is talking about the word of God. As the word of God is preached and the word of God is taught, and as you hear it, the question is, are you quick to hear that word? Are you slow to speak? Are you slow to become angry? Why is it that when we get confronted, we have a tendency to get angry? You ever notice that? When somebody calls you out, kind of like Nathan did with David, and sticks his bony finger in his face and says, you're the man, when that, gets, when that happens to you, why is it that we have a tendency to defend ourselves rather than defending truth? Why is it that sometimes you could sit under preaching or teaching and you could get, oh, I really didn't like that. 
And you could walk out of the congregation today angry, frustrated, because you've been called out, but never changed. What James is saying is, is that as the word is preached and as the word is taught, the Holy Spirit, if your heart is open, can use that as an opportunity to change you, to change you in character and change you in conduct, and he's going to do that oftentimes through relationships. Look here with me. He says, let everyone be quick to hear. Why is it so hard for us to hear? so hard for us to hear because I think for oftentimes we're just big talkers, right? One commentator put it this way. Our anger is often burdened with self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, stubbornness. Does that sound like you? And your anger and your unwillingness to learn from others could oftentimes lead it to be very difficult in your relationships with other people. And it will hinder your relationship with God. God says this, I want you to be slow to listen. I want you to hear my word as the very word of God. You know, in fact, preaching, very honestly, that's why it's, it's, it's a heavy burden to preach. Um, because in essence, if this pastor is doing this appropriately, he is supposed to be the mouthpiece of God to you. You ever hear that? You ever consider that when you come? That when you're sitting here under the word of God, God is supposed to be the one who is speaking to you through the speaker that's in the pulpit. See, it's not just a man that is standing here. It is the very word of God if it lines up with this word. So as we hear, we're quick to hear God's word, but then slow to speak. The vast majority of us have terrible listening skills. We can't stop our mouths. We just cannot stop talking. And that leads to ill-tempered actions. It leads to a lack of trust in God. It leads to a lack of love for others. James says that we need to be living in such a way that I am open to hearing God's word, slowing to saying it out, and then slow to anger. He says in verse 21 this. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word of God. What in the world is he talking about there? He is saying this, that as you come to the word, what the word is supposed to do is to sanctify you. It's supposed to start to change you and transform you from the inside out. That as I come to the word, I should stop the filthiness, the sinful activities, and the rampant wickedness that's in my life, and I should be in meekness and humility receiving what God has for me. God, what do you have to say to me today? Is that you? He says that if you do that, it will be able to save your soul. It almost sounds as if, if you bear with me, it almost sounds as if he says that if I do these right things, then I will be saved. That I have to do this action in order to be saved. And, th and that's not what James is getting at. I want you to realize that there are three different stages, if you want to call it that, to your salvation. Uh, the first stage of your salvation is what we're going to call justification. You're saved from the penalty of sin. As God brings you to life and you confess him, you are justified by God. I'm saved. But there's a second stage of our Christian life, second stage of our salvation, and it's sanctification. We're not only, I'm not being saved from the penalty of sin, I'm being saved from the power of sin in my life. And that's a sanctification process 
We're all equally justified, young or old, but we're not all equally sanctified. We're growing in this process of Christ-likeness. That's what he's getting at here. And then the third element is glorification, where we are going to see God face-to-face, where there's going to be no more sin, no more sorrow. We're saved from the presence of sin. So when James talks here that as you deal with the word of God appropriately, hearing it, wanting to hear from God, and he's transforming your heart and transforming your life, you're dealing with the filthiness, you're dealing with the rampant wickedness, you're meek in meekness receiving this, and it is slowly but surely, progressively making you more and more like Christ. So here's the dilemma. Verse 22, what does it say? But be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer, deceiving yourselves. So, so here's the dilemma that most of us have. We come to the Word of God and we read it. Some of you are in adult Bible fellowship this morning. All of you are sitting here this morning. Some of you have heard other sermons this week or listened. Some of you have opened the Bible this week. The dilemma is not that. The dilemma is, are you putting into practice what you say that you've read and believe? See, what James is arguing is this, your relationships will be vital. Your relationship with God and your relationship with others will be vital and it will be impactful if you are a doer of the word. What good is it if you go to God's word and hear it and do nothing about it? What James actually argues is this, you're deceiving yourselves. How am I deceiving myself? It's interesting. The Greek word talks about this idea of not just deception, but defrauding. Deceiving ourselves into believing that we're in a good position and we're doing good, but defrauding what? Defrauding opportunities that I have to grow in Christ-likeness and to love one another. So I'm losing out in this deception. I delude myself into thinking that I'm in a good position just because I've read the word, but I never apply it. And James is arguing that if your relationships are going to be vital, because we want to develop vital relationships here, because God changes people through what? Vital relationships. That in this relationship, in this connection with other people, it will only happen if you are a hearer and a doer of the word. Doers of the word should be all of what you do. It's not just your mind. It's not just your spirit. It's not just your emotions. It's all of you. It's the entirety of who you are should be led by this word and changed by this word. One commentator put it this way. The obedience that is called for here is a person whose life is characterized by holy energy. Isn't that exciting? I like that. Holy energy. When he says that we're talking about this, he's not talking about sitting passively back hearing God's word. It's the fact that you are active. Some of you are sitting down taking notes. Some of you will this week take those notes and read through them. You're active in it, but it's more than just taking notes. It's more than just being active in that way. It's hearing God speaking and then saying, I am going to apply this in my life for the glory of God and for the good of others. Is that your passion? And then James gives an illustration because he's always good with these illustrations. And he says, you wake up this morning and you roll out of bed And you come to a mirror, and you look in that mirror, and it looks terrible, I'm telling you. I don't know why she married me when I look in that mirror. Okay. And when you look in the mirror, and you look in 
intently into that mirror and you say, I've got to deal with this junk that is here. That is the way we need to go into the word. He uses the mirror as an illustration for the word of God. And he's saying that when you go to that mirror in the morning, you're looking at the imperfections. When you go to this mirror, the word of God, you look at the imperfections that are there in your life. Now, how foolish would it be for me to go into that mirror this morning and see all the imperfections that are there and do nothing about it? But how many times do we go to the word of God, see the imperfections that are there, and do nothing about it? Now, there are some who will go to that mirror and just constantly are looking at their imperfections. That's not what we're supposed to do with the word of God. The word of God is not just exposing our sin. The word of God is pointing us to who? A savior. That you are justified by God. You are declared righteous. You're adopted. You're his child. And so as you go to the word, he says, this is who you are, sin. This is what I want to bring you to, Christ-likeness. You belong to my family, now start to become like my family. And that's what Jesus is wanting to do, so intently looking to this. Verse 25, he says this, something interesting. He says, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty. And he defines the law in two ways. He defines the law first as perfect, and then second as uh, providing liberty and freedom. Turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. This passage is very familiar for a a number of us. As As I read it, you're going to say, I know this passage well. In Psalm 19, it says this in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, verse 8. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the dripping of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Or jump to the last verse of that section. It says, love the words of my mouth. Verse 14. And the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That chapter is talking about, at least that section of the chapter is talking about the word of God. That the word of God is perfect. That it comes from a perfect God and it is a perfect word to you. So as we go to this word, we can trust it. But James is not just saying that it's perfect. He's saying it provides liberty. Now this is where it gets a little confusing. Because there are other sections of scripture that seem to give the impression that if you follow the law, or if you're trying to follow the law, that you will be condemned. Because we can't follow the law in and of our own selves. That's not what James is saying. James is saying this, that filled by the Holy Spirit, regenerated by him, saved, if this is true faith, you come to the word, and what does the word do? It puts you on a path of real freedom in your life and your relationships. It's pretty simple, and it's a word that we don't like to talk about often, but it's the idea of obedience. Obedience. See, when God says, follow this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do it. And when we refuse to do it, guess what happens? There's struggles that happen in our lives and our relationships. So James is saying that this law is perfect. We can trust it. It If 
fueled by the Holy Spirit, can provide liberty. It will cause us to persevere. We hear and not forget. We're going to actually be a doer who acts, and you will be blessed, and your relationships will be blessed. And then he gives an illustration here. He says, true religion. He says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, isn't that interesting that James would go to from the word and anger and relationships and trials and temptations, and he talks about what? The tongue? Why? Because Scripture tells us that the way you speak and the way you act reveals who's Lord of your heart. And that if you can hear this word today, and you walk out of this congregation this morning and start screaming and yelling at each one other today, and bitterness and wrath and anger and broken relationships, it's revealing what's the Lord of your heart. And James says that one of the telltale signs that who's ruling your heart comes out in how you speak to one another. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't hold a tight rein, bridle, my version says, a tight rein. I, I, I don't have horses, but uh, I'm sure that you put uh, something in that horse's mouth and you try to control that animal because that animal can buck me very quickly, very easily. It's much more powerful than me. And in the same way, we need to control our words, control our words. But he doesn't just say this. True religion is controlling your words. Because if you don't, once again, he talks about deception of heart. But then he says this. He says, religion that is pure is what? The one who looks after the orphans and widows in their distress. It's another telltale sign of whether this is real faith for you. Real faith will come out in the words that you speak, but real faith will come out in the compassion and the love that you have for one another. And who, as we were seeing just earlier, those that are in need, we can serve. We can minister to those that are in need. Now, in that culture, orphans and widows were the most vulnerable. Orphans didn't have someone to care for them, but a widow in that culture, as I look out in this congregation and see so many women, in that culture, most women were not educated. Most women didn't have their own jobs, so they were supported by this husband. And when the husband is gone, he's died, this woman is oftentimes left alone, and if she doesn't have children, there's no one to care for her. If you remember Paul, and I think it was Second uh, Timothy, maybe first First Timothy, he had talked about young widows should marry very quickly, very soon, because if not, the church has to care for them. And in this culture, orphans and widows, the most vulnerable. James is arguing that real relationship with God, real religion, not only displays control of our tongues, but displays love to those who are vulnerable. Is that, is that your relationship with others? Do people see the compassion in your life that just flows through? Then he gives us a third marker of true religion. It's not just controlling our tongues. It's not just um, uh, displaying love to the vulnerable, but he also says this to keep oneself from being stained by this world. Growing in holiness. That we live in this world, but we're not supposed to live of this world. We're supposed to be different. That people should be looking at your life and being able to see that there's something radically different about you because the grace of Christ has transformed you. We are receivers of mercy. We should be displayers of mercy. 
And when we are not, there is a telltale sign, a warning that James is going to say here. You need to be very careful and mindful that you may not be a believer. He's going to get even further in that. Then he gives an illustration in chapter 2, partiality. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. Now, where is he going here? As you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I find it interesting that he doubled up on the word Lord in that one verse. The Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory. I think what he's doing is helping us to see that God is to be the sovereign one in our relationships, not me. He says that he gives an illustration of a man who comes into this congregation the man comes into this congregation, he's got a gold ring, rich in that society. And we bring him down front and we say, sit here. You see all the pastors and their wives are up front here. Come sit down here up front. And then we have somebody who's poor. From our viewpoint, we look at them and we say, poor, you sit in the back. Or you know what, you can pull up a chair, you know, you can sit on the floor by my feet. And James argues that that is not truly religious. That is not true faith. Because true faith does what? It controls my tongue. True faith displays love for the vulnerable. And true faith is not being worldly. And we're doing the exact opposite in this partiality. God wants us to live without compromise. God wants to live with compassion for others. Is that your life today? What's the problem with favoritism? Have any of you ever been held and discriminated against? Have you ever even been prejudged? Has anybody ever demeaned you and challenged who you are? Have you ever found yourself, I didn't do that. That's not me. And you find yourself needing to defend yourself or feeling like you need to defend yourself. Well, here's the problem. It's found right here in verse 4. In verse 4, it says this. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The element of favoritism is this, that I am judging you in my heart as less than me. And when you do that, the dilemma is this, you may be missing the gospel. James says it's first of all foolish. If you look, he says says that, These are the people, listen, my beloved brothers, uh, verse 4, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich the ones who are oppressing you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name to which you belong? So don't misunderstand. James is not saying that all rich people are sinful. I know we hear that in our culture today. That's not the reality. But what he is saying is this, that when we make riches our God, it is wrong. And you are judging this person on their external standards rather than about the heart. And we've become prejudiced. We've become discriminatory. I know that there's some push-button words I could say today, right? I could say Democrat or Republican. Instantaneously, there is something within us that just, 
hymns or choruses. <laughs> and what happens is that immediately within our own hearts, we have made a judgment. And if we're not judging based on the royal law, the standard that God has given us in the royal law is love. And that's the whole element. That loving others. So I use this principle with my clients. Just give me a couple of minutes. We talk about this idea of absolutes, convictions, and preferences. You probably have heard this before. Absolutes are black and white standards from God's word. It's very clear. Do or do not. It's very clear from God's word. I can hold you and I need to be held accountable to what God has laid out here in his word. But there's a second level in judgment, and we call it convictions. Convictions are much less than that. Convictions are something that I hold deeply on. So let me give you an example. Please don't take this personally. Uh, but I don't personally drink. I, grew up, I have a family a history of alcohol. I choose not to go and drink. There's so many people I know that are tempted by drinking. I personally don't choose to drink. Now, don't hear this because Jesus is first Miracle was what? Changing water into wine. So do not hear this as a condemnation of those that do drink in this home, in this congregation. What I am saying is this. Personally, I am convicted. I choose not to drink. But I cannot hold you accountable to that. That's the absolute standard is don't be drunk, right? The conviction is I personally choose not to drink. You can do whatever you want as long as you hold to that absolute standard. A much lower element is Preference, preference. I prefer to go to a church that has the hymns and choruses together, which we do here. It's a preference. The dilemma in our relationships oftentimes and why we judge and why we show favoritism is the fact that we elevate our preferences and our convictions to a level of absolutes. I would, I would tell you that the vast majority of the struggles that you have today in your relationships is that you've made something that you prefer or something that you're personally convicted about as an absolute, and it makes it equal with God's word in your words, and it's wrong. And James argues that stop the judging, that you, if you do this judging, you're missing verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as a, law keep, a lawbreaker. What James is arguing is that the problem is not just that somebody's breaking your standard. The problem could be that you're missing the gospel. See, if we miss the fact that all of us deserve an eternity outside of God, but he granted us grace, that no one deserves mercy, no one deserves grace, if it were earned and merited, no one could say that it was true mercy or grace. James is arguing here, and it's summed up in this gospel, that we were far away from God, but we've been brought near by Christ. We don't deserve it. We were hopelessly separated from him. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses. We were blinded by Satan to do his will. We were powerless to overcome our sin. We're not able to please God in what we do. And the problem doesn't stop there. The problem is, is that God hates all sin and he will hold accountable those who are in sin. But the one remedy is you have been set free in Christ and that Christ lived a righteous life for you and he died in your place so that you do not have to stand under the wrath. How can you not pour that mercy and that grace out to one another? If you reject that truth, 
If you refuse to repent, if you refuse to accept his grace, there's judgment. He ends this passage by saying that. He says in verse 12, so speak and act as those who will be judged according to the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy is there for those who have shown no mercy. Mercy should triumph over judgment. James is saying that the fruit of your life is revealed by the words that you speak and the actions that you do. Your conduct comes out of your character. That if you really believe and have faith in God, it should be displayed in your life and in your relationships. And then those relationships are what? Vital relationships. And people can be transformed and changed by that. So that mercy should flow from a grateful heart. That mercy should be representative of how we live in our homes, in our marriages, in our churches, in our community. What would our families look like if we took up James's call here, the Holy Spirit's call to love, to be merciful? I'll end with this. One writer talked about this idea of honoring people. He said it this way. Honor simply means to decide to place high value, worth, and importance on another person by viewing them as a priceless gift and granting them a position in our lives worthy of great respect. He went on to say this, that honor is a gift that we give others. It's not purchased by their actions or contingents upon our emotions. It may carry strong emotional feelings, but it does not depend upon them. Rather, it is a decision that we make daily towards someone who is special and valuable to us. Genuine love and honor is the greatest gift that we can provide one another. To honor people is to involves choosing to highly value them and to put love before our actions. The love that we have for God should pour out in love for one another. God changes people through what? Vital relationships. When somebody rubs up against you, do they hear somebody that loves the word of God? Quick to hear it? When somebody rubs up against you, do they see someone who controls their tongue, not just externally, but because what's in their heart is just an overflow of love for God and others? Do, when they connect with you, do they see someone who just has great compassion for those who are vulnerable? When they see you, do they see someone who is looking to become more holy, more like God? Do they see someone who is not giving in to partiality and favoritism and not judgmental and critical? Do they see Christ? Of course, uh, that's a step-by-step process. It's going to take time. But by God's grace and for his glory, this congregation, these families can change to reflect him to be dispensers of his grace because we are receivers of his grace. Lord, I praise you.